we have had an excellent crowd each session and lest tomorrow night close and I forget I want to say tonight thank you for your attendance and your attentiveness to the preaching it takes more than a preacher obviously to have a meeting somebody has to come and people have to take heed what they hear and pay attention and for that I am thankful the meals have been wonderful your hospitality as always in this area is next to none tonight I was privileged to eat with the Hicks family and banana pudding could prevent me from going an hour tonight but nonetheless we'll do the best we can we're going to preach about a subject that's near and dear to my heart and likewise ought to be to every Bible believing Christian we have preached Christ throughout this week and Paul said we preach Christ and him crucified according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 however in our day and age many modernists leave out the connection between Christ and the church and it is not enough to know Christ one must be a member of Christ's church in other words we could say this to know Christ is to love his church and we'll prove that within the scripture itself tonight before we go there I want to make mention of a couple of points one is that every time we gather especially in a meeting of the gospel we ought to let those that are visiting with us know why it is that we're gathered and what we seek to accomplish here this evening in the churches of Christ Romans 16 16 that is all the congregations that make up the body of Christ our goal and our aim at least it ought to be sometimes we have a few brethren that uh, you know don't want to don't want to go by what the scripture says and we have to kind of keep them in check but we are attempting in the churches of Christ to go back to the Bible now I said that the other day and I want to be more specific and what do you mean by that because I'm not saying just to pick up your Bible and read it the majority of people in this area read their Bibles when I say back the Bible I'm referring to a very rich plea that is housed within the canopy of sacred scripture itself begging commanding beseeching and entreating all people to go back to the Bible first and foremost and to readily understand by observation that we are discussing tonight indisputable facts as far as I'm concerned they're not up for debate the Bible makes them readily clear first and foremost that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God second Timothy 3 16 to go back to the Bible means that the Bible is our chief and only source of religious instruction that is that the Bible claims inspiration for itself thus to go back to the Bible is to go to the source that's perfect and without flaw Jeremiah 1 5 the Bible says that he put 5 through 9 he put his words in Jeremiah's mouth that's inspiration the Bible says Peter makes mention of this that that no prophecy of old time came from the will of man but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost that means the words they spoke or the words they wrote they were carried along by the power of the miraculous guidance of the Spirit therefore it was not their own words that were conveyed but the Spirit that gave them the words this is important young people the Bible is not merely a book the Bible is a book to be observed 
with the highest reverence. We don't worship the Bible, but we worship the God of the Bible. And therefore, we approach the Bible with a heart that's glad to receive Acts 2.41 and ready to receive Ezra 7.10 every precept line by line. Give me the Bible. And so a gospel meeting means we have to have gospel. And there's no gospel outside of the Bible. So when we say go back to the Bible, 1 Peter 4.10 and following, we're talking about first acknowledging that we have to be in agreement on some things. Ford or Chevrolet. Well, I say Chevrolet. Thank you, brother. But, but we can disagree on that. But when it comes to religion, we have to be in agreement. Amos 3, 3, how shall two walk together except they be agreed? 1 Corinthians 1 and number 10, we should speak the same thing, but there are no divisions among us. So the Bible is inspired. These things that there's, we don't have time tonight to debate all of these points. We ought to agree that by readily observing the Bible itself, we could at least agree that the Bible is right and inspired of God. Secondly, that the Bible is to be rightly divided, 2 Timothy 2 and 15. That when we approach the Scripture, Scripture itself, because it's inspired and from God, Scripture itself gives us the way in which we are to rightly divide it. You want to talk about problems tonight? It's because people approach the scripture in very loose and liberal ways. They don't believe that the Bible itself gives us any format in the New Testament or any pattern to observe. I deny that. The Bible says, Jesus speaking, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. That means that part of the way in which we interpret scripture has to involve the the understanding, the acknowledgement, and the obedience to the commands of Christ. Therefore, when I interpret Scripture, Scripture did not come from human interpretation, but humans have to interpret Scripture. But we have to interpret it according to the way in which the Bible says interpret it. You don't have to go to college to learn how to, to interpret the Scripture. The Scripture instructs us how to do that. So if there is a command in Scripture explicitly stated as, a, as specific as the commandment, as specific as God's requirement for us to obey. That makes sense, doesn't it? Second point, approved or binding example. The early church gathered in Acts 20 and verse 7 to observe the Lord's Supper. And therefore we see a consistent framework within the New Testament. We see a purpose, an identity. We see a connection the first day of the week. We see this pattern being observed in the first century. And therefore, we do what they did. And we will be what they were, Christians. And so we interpret the Bible by noting and paying attention to readily observable, consistent pattern in the New Testament. A binding example or an approved example. And from commands and binding examples, we can now inform certain things what I want you to see is tonight when I say let's go back to the Bible I'm not talking about just reading a chapter a day we've got to be so plain and so specific that we understand we're talking about agreeing that the Bible is from the Word of God it is the Word of God without any mistake or error 
I wish I had time tonight to get on a little talk about all these modern translations. They're causing a lot of trouble in the church. Some of y'all have stuff that, I mean, it's just, it goes way beyond Scripture. We don't need a Reader's Digest condensed. We don't need paraphrase. We need the Word of God. Get a reliable, fundamentally accurate translation of Scripture. And then know how to divide it. Know how to rightly divide it. And last, before we move on, we need to understand covenant theology. When one, even a kindergartner, would start reading Scripture, he or she will note that there is a distinguished and marked difference between the old and the new. And that God has always spoken to creation, but he has spoken different ways at different times to creation. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Go back to the Bible. Can we agree tonight it's inspired? Can we agree that we fundamentally are to observe the commands of Scripture and the binding approved examples, specifically under the New Testament of which Christ is over a better ministry, Hebrews 8 and number 6. Because tonight we're talking about the subject of the beauty, the necessity, the loveliness of the church of Christ. Many of our friends will differ and some among us start shaking at the knees thinking, is he going to preach a lesson about one church? It's not just a lesson about one church. It's a lesson about appreciating, appreciating the wife of Jesus Christ our Lord. The church is the wife of Jesus. We as the collective body of Christ universally constitute in that collective sense the feminine body married and under the divine superintendency and submission of Jesus the Christ our husbandman. Tonight... I want us to talk about, to begin with, in Habakkuk chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk, verse 1. It says, Habakkuk? Yeah, sometimes we need to learn verses outside of our normal use. Verse 2, the Bible talks about Habakkuk's prayer, revive us again in the midst of the years. Now, whether that's talking about Babylonian captivity or whether that's a distinctive prophecy looking forward to the incarnation of Christ to revive again the messianic promise of the coming of Christ, there is an overarching principle that goes throughout the entirety of the continuity of the Bible. And that is that God revives His children and brings back to fruition the great concepts of Scripture. There is a time, young people, that we'll talk about in a moment, when Jesus promised to build his church. There was a distinctive time in history in which Jesus in the 16th chapter of Matthew promised to build his church. And after that church came into existence, of which again we'll speak about in a moment, the devil and all of his angels have fought against that divine institution since its establishment. He's tried to curtail people from entering in. He's tried to discourage and bring down the greatest work of all, the mission of the New Testament church, advocating salvation to all men. 
Satan has tried to do everything he can to discourage our own members and to put down and to redefine what the church is and what the work of the church is. But Habakkuk's prayer comes to my mind and it ought to be our prayer tonight. Revive again the work of God in the midst of our years. Bring back to fruition, bring back to our center point in our mind the work in which we have been called to do. And the work in which we have been called to do is to save sinners and sinners cannot be saved unless they come to Christ. Everybody agree? Let, let's talk about this though. And come into the church of Christ. Some of our people are preaching Christ and we ought to preach Christ but preaching Christ is inclusive of the church of Christ. You can't separate it. It'd be like saying, which would you like, faith or works? You've got to have them both. The Bible says in Mark 10 and number 9, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And God joined Christ in the church. And young people, what I want you to know is, if you've been raised attending the service of the church of Christ, you're already ahead of most. You're very blessed to be reared amongst the people of God, hearing gospel preaching and having the opportunity to grow up in an environment where you can note what's happening in the local congregation and to be drawn, hopefully, by the preaching of the gospel someday to obey it. The church of Christ. Now, I know some people, when they hear that phrase, they have automatic shield and the guard goes up and they begin to think and to stigmatize and stereotype all kinds of things about the church of Christ. I asked a lady one time, I said, what do you think about when you think about the church of Christ? She was some of the religious group. She said, well, I'll tell you what I think about, y'all. You don't believe in the Old Testament. Well, I believe in the Old Testament and every last word of it. I actually believe that every single word in the Bible in which I preach from is inspired of God. I mean down to the tense of the verb. That's what I believe. Now some of y'all have gone to college so long and other things, you, you doubt the Word of God. I don't doubt the Word of God. On occasion I've doubted myself, but not the Word of God. Well, here we go. Where do people get that from? Well, they are confused. They think because we teach that we're not amenable to God, that we're not under the old covenant. We don't worship on the Sabbath day, the seventh day, because we don't have instrumental music in the church, because we do not have the burning of incense, that somehow we don't believe, oh no, we believe in the inspiration of the Old Testament, but we understand it was taken out, Colossians 2 and 14, nailed to the cross of Jesus. And what the law could not do, Hebrews 10 and 1, now Jesus, the better mediator, Hebrews 8 and 6, has done for us. I love the writing of Hebrews when it says that we now have a more perfect tabernacle. The first tabernacle, transitionary in nature, designed to be taken, uh, put up and taken down and as the people were nomadic, stood only as a typical arrangement to the great tabernacle to come, the church of Christ. You have the ark, you have the tabernacle, you have the temple, and you have the church or the kingdom. All of those were necessary to those people in the day in which they lived. God has always had a place for his people to reside. God doesn't leave saved people out 
as strangers and not having identity, not having a refuge. God places the saved somewhere in the ark, today in the church. Y'all with me? Some of y'all ate too much banana pudding too. <laughs> Why is this important? Because when we come to Matthew 16, when I say the church of Christ, I'm not talking about this building. I'm not talking about uh, just the church of Christ in Jackson County. I'm talking about God's universal church. That's not Catholicism. That's not every religion that claims to worship God all together in one either. Y'all with me? you got to make it plain people don't understand. So churches of Christ is spoken the plural only when it's talking about the various congregations scattered abroad of God's people. The Church of Christ in Gainesboro, the Church of Christ in Cookville, the Church of Christ here and there in geographical areas. But when we talk about the church singular, we're talking about all the congregations of the churches of Christ constituting and making up the one universal body or the one church of Christ. Now, the reason I bring that up is because a lot of people think that every religious group put together is the one church. That's not true. Well, how do you know that? Let's start from the beginning. First of all, the church was the architectural concept of the Father. According to Ephesians 3 and 10, the manifold wisdom of God. When Jesus said in Matthew, the 16th chapter, that I will build my church. Think about this. I will build. Jesus is saying that he himself would be the superintendent of construction. He said my, and that's possessive pronoun. It's not going to belong to the apostles. And, and, and some people believe that Jesus is promising to build the church on Peter. No such of a thing. Jesus said, I will build my church. And my does not refer to Peter. I know English. My refers to Jesus. Why would Jesus build his church on a man that was flawed just like you and I? Peter was a good man overall. But he is not the buttress. He is not the, 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 the pillar. He is not the underlying rock of the church of Christ. And if he was, tell me how that when he had a little racist bone, remember over in Galatians, when, when Paul had to rebuke him to his face, how would that affect the church? No, the church is not built upon a mere Peter or Paul. The church of Christ is built upon the bedrock of truth, this stable and unwavering message of conviction and hope, certainty and absolute truth that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, Master and Lord, Messiah and Deliverer. So when Jesus said, I will build, he speaks in the future. I bring this out. This is very important to me because some of our friends, especially missionary people, missionary Baptists, they believe John started the church. Did y'all know that? They teach, I've heard it around here on the radio. They believe that John started it. Young people, John died in Matthew, the 14th chapter. He lost his head for preaching on marriage and divorce. And you young preachers, you preach on it, you'll lose your head. So don't get upset when people put a little pressure on you because it's always been a tough subject. But the Bible is true and clear on the subject, Matthew 19 and 9. John lost his head in Matthew 14. Jesus didn't even promise to build his church until Matthew the 16th chapter. I will build my church. Look at this. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. 
Do you mean to tell me that nothing can stop the work and the existence of the church of Christ? That's right. Sometimes we fight against ourselves, brethren. And I hate to beat a dead horse, but the horse needs beating. A lot of our so-called Christian universities, quote, are causing us much disservice because many, not all, but many of the professors and many of the people in these departments, especially when you get out to Texas and places like that, it's pitiful. There's not enough Bible in those places to fill a thimble. And you wonder why when you send your kids there, they go hog wild into denominationalism because everything you tried to build up for 12 or 15 years was undone in the first year they got there. Now, I know I'm preaching the truth because I, I know what I'm talking about. I will build my church, Jesus said. One thing we have to instill in our young people, we ought to be as kind and as humble to all the people around us as we possibly can without the compromise of the oneness of the church. I want to tell you all something. I didn't know this until I was older. Do you all know that the Catholic church teaches hot and heavy that they are the one church. They do not mind telling you that. They believe that they are the one holy mother church. And all others are, are, are simply a secondary offshoot and nothing in comparison to the one holy church. Now, while I don't believe they are the one church, they are correct in this one point. There is what? One body, Ephesians 4, 4. The body is the church, Ephesians 1, 21 and 22. They're correct in that point. So here's what happened. Do you understand? And I want our young people to know all along history, everybody understood there was one church. There was no discussion of that. Everybody knew that. Going all the way back to Acts chapter 2, there was only one church in Acts 2. But then Paul said, the time's going to come. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. In the latter times, some shall do what? Depart from the faith. He's addressing the people. There's going to be a departure. And some in the church rise up and move over into Catholicism. That's what happens. Catholicism was not before the church of Christ. Catholicism came from the church of Christ. In other words, we had some brethren in the early church that began to teach things that were not right. And it, it catapulted into... Catholicism. The remnant of the true church always stayed intact. Y'all with me tonight? Catholicism developed. Over a long period of time, it became so problematic that men like Luther said, no more. And then you have the Reformation and it splinters into many, many, many groups. Now all of these groups say together they constitute the church. Y'all with me? Catholicism says... They are the one church. But I'm telling you, Acts 2 says, the church of Christ is the one New Testament church. We don't say this to put people down. We say this to teach people. So to me, it's not enough just to tell people there's one church. Explain it to them that Jesus promised to build the church. From that, we had problems that had arisen. That 1 Timothy 4, earmark, and other places, Acts 20. Then some from the true church go over into Catholicism. And I'll tell you how that happened, young people. Basically, it was this. They are putting one man 
over multiple churches where the Bible says there is to be elders, a plurality of men, over one congregation. So we have reversed early on under Christianity. We reversed God's plan from elders over every church to one man over many congregations. And that's where it really got nasty. Because when one man has too much control, what happens? It gets bad. God did not set his congregations up that way. Each congregation, each congregation is to have a multiplicity of men over them. So tonight, here we are. Where is the church of the New Testament? I, I want it located, someone says. I want to be a member of that church. Well, you can't run to Catholicism because it came out of the true church. You can't run to Protestant, all, this, all these others, because it came out of Catholicism. Someone said, well, preacher, now be honest. Didn't the Church of Christ come about in America in the late 1700s, early 1800s? No, it didn't. Well, you got to do your homework. No, it did not. If it did, if we came in the late 1700s only in America, and that's where we came from, then we would be a denomination. Alexander the Campbell is not the founder of the Church of Christ. He taught some things right and some things wrong. Here's what happened. Just like Luther was upset with Catholicism, Men were beginning to be upset with all the traditions in religion. And I don't blame them. It's like it is today. We have so many problems in religion. Somebody needs to pray for revival like Habakkuk did in Habakkuk 3, 1 and 2. And men need to rise up and start saying, you know what? We're going back to the Bible. That means the actual inspired text. And we're going to dig down. And what we're going to seek to do is obey the commandments of Jesus obey the binding examples of the apostles, doctrine, Acts 2 and 42, and infer only those things from the commandments and the examples to carry those out. And that's it. To speak where the Bible speaks, remain silent where it's silent. And if we rediscover these ancient truths and we surrender to them, we will be what our early ancestors were, Christians and only Christians. Somewhere under the globe of heaven, ever since Acts, the second chapter, Christians, the remnant, the true New Testament church has always been intact and has always survived. How do you know that? Because Jesus said the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Were we small at times? Absolutely. But since when has the fact that God's people been a minority been a problem to swallow? How many were in the ark? 1 Peter chapter 3, eight souls were saved by water. Eight souls. Only eight souls. So just because the numbers may be small is not, a, is not a charge, an accurate charge against Christianity. Let's go further. Jesus died upon the cross. To that we all agree. There's no debating that fact tonight. He had already promised to build a church. And the same blood that he promised to bring about remission of sins, Matthew 26, 28, and to ratify the New Testament, was the same blood that bought the church of Christ. Years ago, Marshall Keeble was preaching in Nashville, Tennessee. I've heard it on tape. And he said that the Lord's church, the church of the Bible, is the only church paid for because it was bought by the blood of Jesus. And he said, all the rest of them 
He said, the devil has a mortgage on. It's going to come someday and foreclose. That's how he said it on the tape. Think about it. Jesus said, every plant that my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. God is not married. The Christ is not married to multiplicity of, of ladies. He's married to but one to one lady that is the New Testament church. Notice the intimacy in marriage that Paul concludes and compares the husband and wife to the Lord and his church. The intimacy, the highest that we know is husband and wife. And yet Paul completes that thought by the Holy Spirit to us. Let's go further. When Jesus died for the church, it therefore belongs to him. Now in Acts chapter 20, the Bible says to feed the church of God which he hath purchased. One time I was preaching, I mean, somebody really got, you know, tried to get a little smart, really. They said, well, we can call ourselves Church of God. We know some people do not want the words Church of Christ out. And I'm telling you, I know this. You notice, you notice the uh, kind of the, the push now? Like in Tulsa, it's, it's not Park Place Church of Christ, it's the park. Or Otter Creek. Y'all with me? That they emphasize the location and not the church of Christ anymore. Something real wrong with this. Someone said, well, preacher, we, we could call it church of God, couldn't we? Acts 20. All right, but let's look at this. Church of God, the Bible says, which he purchased. Who? Jesus. How do you know? With his own blood. So church of God would still be what? The church of Christ. It does not belong to the Father. It does not belong to the Spirit. It belongs to Jesus because He died for it. It was the Father's plan, Ephesians 3.10. The Spirit brought order and organization to the church, do all things decently and in order, 1 Corinthians 14 and 40. He brings life to the church, but it belongs to Jesus. When I'm reading Acts and I think about, uh, you know, the house of Lydia. Paul stayed in Lydia's house. Lydia's house is the house of Lydia. Y'all know that, right? It's nobody but Lydia's because it's Lydia's house. It's the house of Lydia. Jesus said, I will build my church. My church is Christ's church, and Christ's church is the church of Christ. Someone said, well, what's so much in a name? A whole lot. Because the Bible says there's no other name, Acts 4.12. There is no other name. I walk up to this man here who's about twice as big as me and pretty stout even though he's older way on up in years and I say well your wife is nothing but a Jezebel well those are fighting words he's going to come after me right I say well oh, this is... she's probably tougher than him probably is but you see what I'm saying there is something in a name have y'all noticed we do in religion what we don't do in the real world when you're going to name your precious baby, nobody says, oh, there's nothing in the name, and you just pick the first one that comes along. My wife thought months about it. I had so many great names picked out. She vetoed every one of them. My great-grandmother kind of raised me. Her name was Perk. Well, Ella was not going to be called Perk. Well, what about Lorraine? Nope. What about Aunt Pug? Nope. There's something in a name. Oh, it's not a magical potion that when you say Christ that magic happens. But when you say Christ, the name really is in reference to the authority. 
and he has all authority, Matthew 28. All things are under his feet in the church, Ephesians 1, 21 and 22. And therefore, what I'm trying to get you to see is there is something. And when we're called Christians, we belong to Jesus and the church of Christ because it belongs to him that we should fight and stand up for the name in which and by which we are saved. You're not saved because you know the name Christ, are able to speak it, but you're saved because of that name. And if you honor that name, and if you live for that name, and I'm going to tell you all something. Those of us that are ashamed of the church, you know what Jesus said? If you are ashamed of me, you're going to have big problems someday. We're not to be ashamed of the gospel. So as we go on further, the blood of Jesus bought the church. That means that the New Testament church is sealed and upheld, paid for, directed everything by the blood. It's secure, it's safe. As the ark was safe from the storms that came about, so shall the church of Christ be safe in the last storm this world knows. And that's the day of judgment. Well, where is the church? Well, it's not the building, as we said earlier. Actually, the kingdom of the church, according to Luke, the 17th chapter, is within you. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. That's why they could throw Paul and Silas in jail, but yet the church was still alive. They could kill them, but the church would still be alive. They could kill our founder, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but the church would still be alive. Because the hand of God and the blood of Christ brought about the church, it cannot be dissolved. The kingdom is eternal in design. And to be a member of the kingdom is to have a security and a great peace of mind to live forever with Christ in the glorious heavenly realm above. The church. What does the church look like? Well, universally, we have one body of believers. Everybody that has exited the world and come into Christ has been added to the church by Christ. So when you're baptized into Christ tonight, if somebody wants to do that, we'll talk more about that at the end, about 15 minutes left. If somebody wants to obey the gospel, the Lord is going to add you to his church. See, there is no such thing as, some people say, well, I'm going to accept Jesus into my heart and then you'll be saved, and then in a few months I'm going to go find me a church home. That didn't work like that in the New Testament. First of all, accepting Jesus into your heart is not even a New Testament doctrine. You obey from the heart. The heart's involved. But, but it's not just some mental acceptance. It's not some fluffy, warm feeling. It's a conviction. It's a deep, penetrating conviction of your heart. And when you believe in Christ and repent of your sins and confess Him with the mouth and obey Him in water baptism and contact His blood. Your sins are forgiven and He adds you to the church of Christ. And when that happens, you're a member of the family of God. Then you find a local congregation to place membership with. You find a local church of Christ that's sound in the faith, strong, that you can grow there. And you talk to those elders and you identify with them. You let them know that you're going to be worshiping there so they can help hold you accountable. 
So they can shepherd your soul, 1 Peter chapter 5, and work together. But see, you have to be a member of the universal church before you can come in and place membership with the local church. Y'all with me? Some people today, they just kind of come in and they stay long enough and some of our brethren start just putting them to work. I don't believe in that. that wait a minute, let's ask some questions. Where you come from? You obeyed the gospel? Did you come from a congregation in good standing? Call down to that congregation. Did brother so-and-so come in good standing? Because if he caused trouble there, he'll cause trouble here. Check them out, brethren. Don't be excited to put one on the tote board that you overlooked in the past. Right? Transferring from one place to another is biblical. Romans 16, 1, Phoebe did it. But she had a reason, because she moved. But transferring from one place to another because you're running from problems, not taking care of them, and bringing those problems to another place is just covering up problems with more problems. The New Testament church is organized a very specific way. Every local church is to have elders and deacons, Acts 14 and 23. Some places that small or rural areas may not have men qualified. We know that. But God's ideal is that every church of Christ have elders, plural, that are qualified, 1 Timothy 3, and deacons, Philippians 1, 1, that work in the church. Elders to oversee and deacons to carry out the work. That's what the church of Christ looks like from an organizational standpoint. Anything, young people, that does not constitute that divine arrangement is a foreign arrangement. And while I'm on this point, I'm preaching to the non-Christians tonight that are visiting with us, but I'm also preaching to our own brethren. And if you are a visitor, rest assured that we will be just as hard on our own brethren as we are on those outside. That's fair. We're not going to hold people accountable and then take the Passover on our own brethren. Sometimes in congregations where there are no elders, we have to be careful that we don't allow one brother to exert too much too much control in an area. Sometimes the treasurer of a congregation where there's no elders thinks he runs the congregation. He does no such of a thing. He ought to give a financial accounting to the brethren. He ought to hand over the statements. There ought to be at least two people on the bank account. He ought to do all things honorable in the sight of all men. He is not in control of the church. He's simply one that has a duty to carry out. If he can't do it properly, call the men of the church and let somebody else do it. If you allow somebody to exert too much, you're going right down the path of what happened to our early ancestors with Catholicism. No one person in the church exerts too much authority. The authority is in the eldership plural in the church of Christ. But look at this. Not only are we organized according to Scripture, Acts 14, 23, but the worship itself is a very sacred and reverent act. We are not on the Lord's Day gathered to be entertained. We are not here to just promote the youth group. Someone says, well, we just got to do things for the youth so we can keep the youth. No, what we need to do is preach Jesus and let all men come to the cross. An old person's soul, y'all with me, is just as valuable as a young person's soul. Quit trying to coddle the young people. Make them be accountable. That's a good preaching. Because I think what we're doing is we're trying to just do anything we can to, to, to just cradle them. They actually need to know this. I saw one t-shirt said, 
You know, uh, something about leadership. Children were not designed by God to be leaders. You're not leaders, you're students. You're children. You are to obey your parents, Ephesians 6.1. You are to watch and to observe. You're not to be in leadership capacity. God doesn't have children leading the church. Since when was that? See, read the book. Uh-oh, he's gone to meddling now. You ain't seen nothing yet. 1 Timothy 2.8, the Bible says that we are to have holy men of God pray among us. Men. I'm all for youth. We have four children ourselves. But I learned a long time ago. Children need to be held accountable. Not simply given pizza two times a week. Buying pizza for the kids does not make your youth group stronger. It just, it just doesn't. You want to buy them pizza? Buy them pizza. But feed them the word of God. Now here we go. So not only organized according to elders and, and deacons, but our worship is not entertainment driven. It's not youth focused. Actually, it's Christ focused. Bible based, reverent, holy. That's what it is. And it goes back to, now listen to this. It goes back to the same thing where we started. We're going to the inspired scripture. Is it commanded? Do we have an approved example? If we don't, it's not happening. Y'all with me? It's not happening. And when you go back home to your respective congregations, be kind, always be kind, but be firm. Sometimes the Lord may be depending upon one brother here tonight to go back home and to remind the church where they're from to stay the course. We don't need any more congregations to party. That means that the preaching should be preaching. Not a sports broadcast. Not a better felt than told. Not just some poetry. It needs to be preaching. Then we need prayers, heartfelt prayers by men that are holy, that lead us. We need to sing with the spirit and with the understanding. We need to sing in such a way as which we praise God and we need to make sure that we don't ever even think about adding to singing. We don't need praise teams. We don't need solos. We don't need choirs. We don't need to show out. We don't need all of those things. We certainly don't need mechanical instruments of music. We don't need clapping. We don't need any of that stuff. If you let one in, you let it all. It's not commanded. There's no example. Stay away from it. However, going on, giving. We're not tithing. We're not Old Testament. I, you can't believe how many places I go on the back of the pew and the card that says tithes and offerings. Well, brethren, since when are we tithers in the church of Christ? You're not a Jew. You're not under the Old Testament. We ought to give as we prospered. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. They gave more than 10% anyways. And if anything, we ought to give more. But don't, don't fall for that Old Testament jargon. Our giving should be upon the first day of the week. Our brethren, and I saw this here recently, it wasn't too far from here. A fundraiser. Let me tell y'all something. We don't raise funds by car washes and bake sales. Amen? We don't prostitute. We don't prostitute our children having them out there with some type of, you know, a bathing suit and doing a car wash, the way the church work continues, the church of Christ, is we members of a local congregation willingly, cheerfully, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, give upon the first day of every week in such a way that there would be no gatherings, Paul said, when he comes. So we don't, we don't get into all those, those gimmicks and 
bake sales and bazaars and garage sales. You want to have a garage sale at home, have one, and then donate the money yourself to the church. But the church doesn't have a garage sale. My, my, my. What if some of our old-time preachers could come back from the dead? Brother Foy Wallace and some of our old-time preachers. What would they think of us? The truth is, we need revival, Habakkuk 3 and 2. And we need to be consistent and steady, and we need to be satisfied with a thus saith the Lord and not go any beyond it. And that's really been the bulk of my preaching over the 20-something years in which I've preached. Everywhere I've gone, I've tried to instill that in the minds of people. That it's up to our generation. Every generation decides what's going to be the immediate direction of these congregations. Now, yes, good news is if we go way off the beaten path, there'll be somewhere on this earth that remains solid. But we don't want to go off the beaten path because our children and grandchildren live around here. We want to have a place protected where gospel preaching is always in vogue. We also need to remember the Lord's Supper. This sacred and holy act in which we come and commune with our Lord. That, that, we're not, that we're not in any way thinking of anything else besides that sacrifice when we commune. This passage has always stuck with me. Bothered me somewhat. Because I don't know that we understand the significance of this passage. He that eateth or drinketh unworthily. Eateth and drinketh damnation to his soul not discerning the Lord's body. Worthily, it's an adverb. It's not saying that you're without sin. It worthily means that you're partaking of it in a manner that's pleasing unto Him. Explained by the latter part of the passage, not discerning the Lord's body. So if I'm partaking of the Lord's Supper and I'm not discerning His body, I'm taking of it in a common way, which means it's, I'm mixing the two up and I'm eating and drinking damnation to my soul. The Lord's Supper is a time in which every thought of your mind has to, be, has to be out except for that. Everything. As we close tonight, as I said I would in 15 minutes, I want to ask you a question very personal. I mean very personal. Number one, have you ever obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ in baptism? Water baptism specifically. For the remission of your sins. Have you ever done that? Someone said, well, yes, I was baptized uh, a long time ago. All right. Number two, when you were baptized, did you understand that you were being added to the church of Christ? Every scriptural baptism in the New Testament, every great commission, water baptism in the name of Jesus, always connected itself and taught the kingdom as well. That's why Acts 8 and 12, the Bible says, and preached the things concerning the kingdom and the name Jesus Christ and baptized them, both men and women. If there's anybody here this evening that wants to become a Christian and a member of Christ's church, not Catholicism, the first splint off, not Protestant, not some fly by night, they're on every corner now. I'm not putting people down but the institutions are wrong. Y'all with me? It's the institutions that are wrong. But you see what's happening. Satan, Revelation 12, 9, he's beguiling people to believe that it does not matter where you go or what you believe as long as somehow you, you're a halfway good person. That's not what the Bible teaches. So tonight, if you're here 
and you want to go all the way back, all the way back, I mean back, 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 back to Jerusalem, to the first church, the church of Christ. The only way you can enter is to enter in the same way they entered. Listen to what I'm about to quote and see if this is what most people preach today. All right, we, we want to we become saved. That's what they were saying, basically. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For this promise is unto you, your children, and all who are afar off. Is that what's being told to people today on the radio? No. So they're not being added to that same New Testament church. They're being added to some other flavor of religion. It's our job to first and number one, make sure we're in the ark. Obey the gospel correctly. And then once the Lord adds us to his New Testament church, then let's get excited, let's get educated, and let's go out and try to win as many people to the true New Testament church that we can while we're alive. That would please God. And to help save souls for Jesus. And if you are a member of the church and you've gone astray, you've, you've somehow lost your first love, Revelation, or left your first love, Revelation 2, 4, and 5, why don't you think about being restored tonight, Galatians 6 and 1? Oh, I love the church of Christ. And when we die and someone etches on our tombstone, if they could just say something like, a devout Christian, a faithful member, of the Christ church that would be enough for me can that be etched upon your tombstone if not allow the Lord to write your name in the Lamb's book of life as we stand and as we sing